0: Well, good evening. I hope that on your way in you found and secured a purple. What color is that? Purple. What color? Lilac. Lilac. The thing. The piece of paper. a thing back there. That. Uh, and hopefully you can see see our slides. Okay. Alright, let me open this up in a word of prayer and we'll get we'll get started. Father, I'm so thankful for your goodness and for your kindness. Lord, we recognize that none of us would know you if you hadn't have intervened in our lives. But Father, we're also gonna see tonight that the world would not have known you unless you intervened in world history. And we're so thankful that you've done that, not just with a flood. Or fire from heaven, not just with venomous snakes or opening up the earth and swallowing people whole, not just with boils and diseases and plagues, but with the message of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, all of us want to know you better. That's why we're here. And we know that we do that through your word. And we want to understand your word better so that we can know you better. So Father, would you help us do that tonight? I pray that Uh, these ideas would be clear, and that in as much as they are true, that they would be helpful for folks, and that you would give us a more full, more accurate picture of what it is that you're doing in history. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All right, well welcome to week two of the story of the Bible. Um, Man, this is wigging out on me up here. Forget it. Uh, we started a few weeks ago, we are working on an eight or nine week series where we are going to try to trace the theme of the Bible all the way, all the way through. And one of the reasons, I want to I try to frame this problem a little bit because I think we have a problem with the Bible. I think we have a problem reading it. We don't read it as much as we should. That's a problem. We'll deal with that some other time. Um, but I think really we have a problem understanding it. We have really, really fragmented knowledge of the Bible. If you were to do a thought experiment and let's say that a seven-year-old in our church came up to you and said, Please, I've got 15 minutes. Just imagine this. I've got 15 minutes. Can you tell me the whole story of the Bible? after you pick your jaw up off the floor, you would probably uh, explain something about how God created the world, and he created us good, and he put man in the garden, and then man fell, and then God made a promise, and upward upward to Christ, right? We skip this, right? The Old Testament (laughs) uh, so often, and I think we struggle to understand how to relate to the Bible, And so part of the problem is that we have very fragmented knowledge. We talked about that last time. And so part of my goal tonight is to, we're working towards a unified framework. How does all of the Bible fit together? And so I'm trying to give you eight, I'm calling them guideposts, there's probably a better term, if you think of a better metaphor, let me know. Eight guideposts that, that progress and move on so that no matter where you are in the Bible, you can kind of orient yourself and say, oh yeah, promise, right, that's coming, I know, I know what's going on. But we want to recognize and say, we know that the, the Bible is complex. It's very complex. It's diverse in genre and style. It's got all sorts of different authors. It's written over thousands and thousands of years. It is incredibly complex. You can sample this by sitting down and reading Romans chapter 1, Song of Solomon chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, and Isaiah chapter 1. Very, very different. And how do they fit? How do they fit? Well, I am trying to argue for the unity of the Bible. And what I mean, I think we would probably all say, yeah, the Bible is unified. But I'm talking practically. I mean, do you read the Bible like it's one book? 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, for all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? That means that God is the single author. There is one author, and since there's one author, we can understand this big, diverse, complex, old, multilingual book as being a unified word from God. But we don't treat it like that most of the time. We treat it as being very fragmented, Sometimes it can be very hard to see how all the pieces fit together. Now, I'm not saying this, I'm not fussing at you. This is, I'm describing my problem with the Bible. I find the Bible, my knowledge of the Bible can be very fragmented. I'm trying to put it, I'm trying to put it all together. Perhaps you heard me read from Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. You're like, why is he talking about Cyrus? What's Cyrus have to do with this? Well, this, this kind of study helps us answer those questions it can be difficult to put all the pieces together. An illustration for this is if you're trying to do when I was in uh, elementary young school, and when I had time, I like to do puzzles, right? My mom and I had a 2,000-piece puzzle. Anyone done a 2,000-piece puzzle, right? Ha ha, I did a 2,000-piece puzzle. And uh, it was terrible, right? So, we, and to look at this incredible thing, we, what did we do? We took the box that's got the answer, and we set it up on the table at a prominent place, and what'd you do? Like, you, you look at the pieces, you look at the box. You look at the pieces, you look at the box, right? That, that's, what we, that's what we do. The box, the picture in the box, gives us a unified picture of the, of the way it's supposed to look at the end. Then, when you need to, you can zoom in to understand the pieces. Another way to think about it is we could think of the Bible as being like a single, very detailed tapestry, Right? woven together with all sorts of pieces of thread. And you can look at it, and you can study it, and you can maybe figure out some of the pieces of, of what's going on. And that's, that's really interesting. And you can take your your small group Bible studies, and you can dive in deep and spend you know six years in one chapter and do all that sort of stuff. And, and, and I like that. That's good. But it, isn't it more interesting if you have the context and see how it all fits together, and then you begin to see how rich it is? You see what we tend to do is we're like "Ooh, a bird I love birds let's talk about birds and then we miss the details on the fountain or miss the fact that there's a fountain there at all. I think this is I think this tapestry is called hunting unicorns or something weird. We've got art history in here it's hunting unicorn I don't know. Um, But the the point is, is that when we get the whole picture, then we can understand and appreciate how it works. Now, I like the idea of tapestry. Perhaps you've heard, we've got some posters around the church that talk about the scarlet thread, like a red piece of thread. I, I love that metaphor. You can take a red piece of thread and take it all the way through the Bible, all the way through, from beginning to end, even the weird stuff. It is anticipating or explaining or celebrating or looking back on who? Jesus on the Christ. And so it's there's a common thread. And as we zoom out, we can start to pick up on the theme of this tapestry and see how all the pieces fit together. Now, pre- everybody's like, yeah, I believe you. Good. I got all this. Okay, but let's talk practically for a second. If... If you and I really believe that the Bible is united, right, it's, it's, it's unified, and if we are going to be skilled in it, then we should be able to see how the pieces fit together. All right, this can be, this can be real. Mark preached with an understanding of this this morning. I mean, it it can be very complicated. The whole book of Romans is built on the person of Abraham. So much of Hebrews is explaining the Sabbath. So much of Galatians is explaining circumcision. I told somebody this week, I I spent three hours reading about circumcision. They looked at me like... Huh? Well, I mean, because it's trying, trying to fit how to see how it all fits together. There are themes that are developed. And so if we're going to be good students of the Bible, if we're going to study to show ourselves approved, then don't we need to understand how the pieces fit into the whole? But so often we have a really fragmented, piecemeal Bible knowledge, and I'm afraid, at least in my life, I find that that leaves me very impoverished when I'm trying to understand uh, God's Word. Okay. One way we see this, I think, is in the neglect of the Old Testament. I think we entirely, well, not entirely, but we largely misunderstand the role of the Old Testament. We treat it as if, except for Psalms. Psalms is great, except for the hard ones, right? We, we treat it as like, why, do, why, does even, why, did, why didn't God, after Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just skip to Matthew 1, 1? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why do we have all of that stuff? like why why was I mean why did God allow all that time to pass why do we have all that in the Bible I mean how do how do we relate to this stuff how do we make sense of it why do we have all these covenants and the genealogies? Anybody love genealogies in here? Not your genealogy. I'm talking about Ephraim's genealogy. I mean, the reason that we struggle with genealogies is because we don't understand the big picture, just so you know. If you, if you read a genealogy, you're like, I have no idea what this is talking about. I'm reading 1 Chronicles 1 through 14 right now. It's 14 chapters of genealogies, right? The genealogies remind us that we don't understand the big picture so often, okay? Um, why do we learn about these feasts and the tabernacle and the weird prophecies? What about Daniel's 70 weeks and all this weird stuff? What's going on? Well, I want to make one preliminary point tonight, and that is I want to encourage you to be thinking about the Bible as progressive revelation, okay? When you think of progressive, think of unfolding, right? Like an unfolding of a map. We have this massive map, and, and it's, it's slowly opening up to us. And God's got, the, he can see the whole thing, but over time throughout history, he's unfolding another page, and we're being able to see another picture of it. I'll go through this part a little bit a little bit quicker, but let me explain what this means. If this seems, if some of this seems kind of uh, academic, just, just bear with me for a second, but let's think about this. Revelation involves a historical progression. What that means is, God did not reveal himself all at once. He's revealing himself over time. Okay? There's a lot of implications for us there. Um, one of those, think about Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? Who? his son. God spoke differently to the fathers and in the last days he speaks in a different way. Do you see? And there's a different amount of information that has uh, been been given. So we need to understand that is a historical progression. So often we plop into some Old Testament book and we read it as if it's just right in the middle of our own context. Right, so we got to be careful. I'll give examples later. Uh, Revelation is in historical progression. So what that means is, as it's unfolding, it's not complete. Right? If we have a thirty-six fold map and you open up three folds, do you have accurate knowledge about the map? Yes. Right. It's just fragmented. Right. If you open another fold on the map, you've got five now. Right. You have more, but you have more than three, but you still don't have 36, right? That, that's, how, that's how the Bible works, and we don't, even, we don't have it all yet, folks. This is why revelation is very mysterious to us, because God hasn't revealed it all to us yet, okay? He's revealed enough, but he certainly hasn't revealed all, okay? Um, so there are places, if I can say this reverently, where we have to recognize the storyline is underdeveloped. Think about Ephesians chapter 3. Do I have this up here? This is a great way to illustrate this. Uh, He says, The mystery was made, this is Paul saying, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Okay, that word mystery is important. As I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now look what he says. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So what Paul's saying is, there's all the stuff we know about Christ that Noah didn't know about. And Moses didn't know about, and David didn't know about, they didn't know. So when we're reading, right, if you uh, my wife and I were talking about how we do this, like if you read in Isaiah with the suffering servants, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, we rightly think about Jesus, right? But we can completely forget what's actually going on there in Isaiah, that we don't have that perspective until we have the cross. So there's, there's more that's going on. So we need to recognize that in that place, there's a, there's a developing, and unfolding. So in the Old Testament, the gospel is being unfolded. And there are many, many other mysteries. Okay, so when we're reading the Bible, you, we, we need to just take account of this. We need to remember that revelation is progressive. We need to be careful. Don't get stuck on one scene and then miss the bigger picture of the whole story. But don't, I like to think about it as, uh, it's like zooming in and zooming out. Zooming in, stopping in the middle. A little bit more, come back, right? It's like we want to to constantly be moving back and forth from the scriptures. Like with a telescope and a microscope, okay? Um, An example of this Uh, I've been preaching on David and Goliath on Wednesday nights. This past Wednesday, I preached a sermon, and the main idea from the text was that those who trust in the Lord will be saved by his anointed one. Okay, those who trust in the Lord will be saved by his anointed one. Well, what that means in one sense is that Israel trusted in David, the anointed one, and they were saved by the Lord, right? You see that? But we also recognize that when we trust in Christ, the anointed one or the Messiah, we're saved by him. Right? So there's a, there's a zooming in and there's a zooming out. So we need to pay attention to the progressive nature. Um, if, you're, if you're lost, let me put it like this. This makes me think of watching a movie with that annoying movie watcher. Maybe you married an annoying movie watcher, right? My wife isn't here, so I would not tell you a story about how recently we were watching a movie, a, a show or something, and we turned on it on in three minutes, and it seems like the character might commit suicide. And she says, is he going to commit suicide? And I'm like, we've both watched exactly three minutes of this show. I do not have any more information. And this is, shows the difference in our personality. Is, right? like, and, and there's a sense of where we need, it's just, just let it unfold. The director will tell us when he wants. He's doing, I mean, he's doing something. He's doing something clearly, right? Just let it unfold. Give it time. Enjoy the scene now. You'll get the big picture later. Now, there's another component of this that I think is, is helpful. Have you ever met the movie spoiler guy, right? You know this person where they're like, I saw the Titanic, it sank. <laughs> I don't think I spoiled anything for you, right? But they completely just ruined the movie by telling you some, some piece of it, right? I read a book um, last a couple years back. It was on the Lusitania, which is another ship that sank. And you, I didn't know anything about the Lusitania. So I opened it up and on the first page, it's like the Lusitania sank. And I was like... All right, well, this ain't going to be a thriller, right? I mean, it just, it just went ahead and told me right at the front. And, but I still read the book, right? Because the point is not just that I know the ending. The ending is very important in the Bible. But God doesn't just give us the ending. He gives us thousands of pages of plot and setting and scene and tension, Right? All sorts of stuff that's going on. We don't watch movies just to know the ending. Sometimes my wife's like, let's just skip to the end. I'm like, no, that makes no sense to me. If I want to watch a movie, I want to spend the time watching the movie. We don't skip to the end, right? And so often that's what we're tempted to do with the Bible. We just got, and I'm, I'm not talking about just the end of times. I'm even talking about Christ. We, we like read the beginning and then we just skip to Christ. Because we see the Bible is about... Christ. Well, I want to suggest this to you, and I'm hoping that this this class will wet an appetite for this. I want to encourage you. For some reason, God has chosen in his sovereign wisdom to slowly unfold revelation. And I want to suggest to you that we should enjoy it We should understand the way that he's unfolding it. Not flatten it down to the Lusitania sink, but understand the people in all the ways because God has been very intentional about acting in history in a specific way. There are all sorts of things you miss if you just go to the Lusitania sink. And this is God's revelation. And so I want to encourage you, let's delight in it. Let's, the, the theme of circumcision is so much richer for me after spending a lot of time thinking about this one specific component, about how circumcision worked even before Israel used it, right? It's richer to me now, and that's what we have all throughout the Bible. My goodness, I've got to speed up. Okay, so in this course, I'm trying to argue that the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. I I feel we could talk about that in different ways. If you want to squabble with me about it, that's fine. Come on. Um, The kingdom of God. God is the king, and he is expressing that throughout world history. That is the theme that unifies all the Bible. And I'm giving you this phrase. This is the main thing that I want you to, to take away. It's so easy to remember. You can just look at it and remember it once forever. God's people and God's place under God's rule. That is the kingdom of God. And all throughout the Bible, you can use this little formula, this little sentence, to help you understand where you are and what's happening. And specifically, how it's unfolding. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, the early weeks in this course, for many of us, they may feel kind of simple. Or you might be thinking, ah, it's not feeling simple at all. But like, some of the stuff we'll talk about in Genesis 3 tonight will not be new to you. But what you may find is new is the way it unfolds over time. Like, who is God's people now? Is it Israel? Or is it us? What about the land? I mean, is, is ethnic Israel going to get the, the actual piece of land or is God talking about something else? Those are very controversial, very exciting, very interesting questions. And this is setting the groundwork for us. Okay? So God's people and God's place under God's rule. I've given you a chart there and you can fill it in as we go. And I'll, I'll give you lots of answers later. Okay? So we're going to try to trace this pattern throughout the Bible. And you think of each one of those as a theme. And you'll hopefully you'll hear it buzzing some all throughout. Uh, I'm and focus especially on how each one of these changes over time, okay? That's the key, how it changes over time. God has promised to reestablish his kingdom on earth. And to have a kingdom, you got to have a king, and you got to have a people, and you got to have a place. They got to be somewhere. So God's got to make all that happen or there's no God's kingdom here here on earth, all right? So that's what we're going to see happening, and we're going to pay especially to Special attention to how God's going to do this, and this is really, really, really fun, really fun. Okay, so last week, uh, last whenever we did the first guidepost, which is called the pattern of the kingdom. Look at that chart. Anybody here like charts? Like charts? Yeah, I like charts. I like making charts. Okay, so we're going to fill this in over time. Um, You can buy the book and get the answers. I'll give you the answers later. Hey. Uh, all the answers are on the website, if you've ever found our website. Um, so you can go down, download it there too, but I'll give it to you. So in the first stage, we see the pattern of the kingdom, all right? So in the first stage, who is God's people? Adam and Eve, who are God's people, right? Adam and Eve are God's people and they are in God's place, the garden, and they are under God's rule. God's speaking to them. You shall eat. He, gives them, he speaks in all sorts of ways. He gives them all sorts of things to do. Eden is important because it shows us the pattern of the kingdom. It is the original, it is the original prototype. It's what the kingdom, it's what God wants Uh, his kingdom to look like. We see God's people living in his place, the garden, under his rules. They submit to his word. Now, here's an important thing to notice. To live under God's rule is to be very, very happy. It's one of the greatest discoveries of my life, is that the Christian life is not a whole bunch of, Nathan, you can't do this, but it's a, my goodness, you get to enjoy this The Christian life is a happy, happy life when you submit to God's rule. When you submit to God's rule, you enjoy his blessing and you enjoy his provision. When you do not submit to God's rule, you do not enjoy God's blessing and his provision. Submitting to God's rule is the best way to live. God's rule and his blessing are always connected. Now this changes in some very interesting ways throughout history. Because how in the world does God deal with the people who never submit to his rule? Israel never did it. So what's God going to do, right? It's exciting. So God's original creation shows us that the model of his kingdom is this is how it was meant to be so tonight we're going to move on to the perished kingdom and i'll go ahead and give you the answers because i know some of you can't think until you get the next blank and these are the only blanks i'm going to give you tonight so uh so just relax who who in this next stage who's god's kingdom nobody all right adam and eve blew it where is god's place Well, they're banished from it, so it doesn't matter where it is, because they don't get to experience. They're not with God. And how do they experience God's rule? Well, they disobey, and so what do they get? A curse, all right? No one banished disobedience and curse. So here's what we're going to see. God's people, Adam and Eve, think that life would be better if they could live independently from God, right? This is the story of America, We think life would be better in American culture. We think life would be better, humanity, forget that, humanity. Life would be better if we could live without God. Well, the results are disastrous. So Adam and Eve, in response to God, they sin and they are no longer God's people. They turn away from him and what does he do? He turns away from them. He kicks them out of the garden. He puts warrior angels with massive flaming swords to remind them, you cannot come in here. They are no longer God's people. They are banished outside of God's place. Sin leads to exile. Does that ring any bells? Right? Think throughout the Bible. Sin leads to exile. Pushes them away. They're outside of the garden. And they're not under God's rule. So they don't enjoy God's blessing. And so what do they experience? The curse. But in love, we're going to see that God promises to restore a kingdom for them. So that's the overview of what we're doing. So let's kind of, let's break that down. Here's another way to put it. (laughs) Right? Nothing goes bad. Okay, let's talk about this. This is the second major guidepost, the perished kingdom. It begins with a talking snake. All right? A talking snake slithers its way into and begins to spoil this creation. Now, we don't have any clues about where the snake comes from. In Revelation, Satan is identified as a snake. Okay? It's another way you can see unfolding. Some of the patterns continue. Some of them change. I've been preaching recently. I think Goliath typifies the snake, the serpent. There's, there's clues that show that Goliath is like a snake. But in this case, we have a talking snake. Just let that register for those of you who have been in church your whole life. A talking snake. Okay, well hang on, I'll get there. Alright, I'm with you, Jim. Okay, so, so um, we don't know where he came from. The New Testament talks about the angels rebelling. We read about that in 2 second, in second Peter and in Jude. But the main thing to know, especially in the beginning, is that evil exists. It's the main thing to understand. Now, we need to assume that Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 1 through 3, well, especially chapter 3, is a real, literal event. Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul, okay, this is why this kind of stuff's important, Paul interprets the gospel based on what's going on here, right? So he contrasts Adam, a literal person, to Christ, another literal person. It's my conviction that the talking snake could contain some symbolism. Okay, don't shoot me. I'm not saying, I'm not sure. But I think that there could be some symbolism that's going on here. Um, However, we must, I think, affirm that this is an actual event. Adam and Eve are historical people. They interacted with Satan in some manifestation. It's an actual event, a talking snake. And then we move on to this act of rebellion. Okay, so how does God exercise his rule in the garden? He gives them laws, commands to obey, things to do. God exercises his rule in the garden through his word. Just to note, God always exercises his rule through his word. Always. And that's why we ultimately see Christ who is seated on the throne. And what is Jesus Christ called? In the beginning was the Word, Even when Christ is on the throne ruling, God exercises his rule through his word. See how these things unfold over time? Now, this is where Satan attacks God's word. He attacks God by attacking his word, his rule. The first thing he does is he makes God sound more harsh than he actually is. Uh, We'll be in Genesis 3, the first first couple of chapters pretty much the whole night. I have some on the screen, but you can follow along. In Genesis chapter 3, 1, we read, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and of the Lord God has made. I think that's a strong hint that says maybe literal snake. I don't know. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What was he doing? Well, in one sense, he is adding to God's law. He's making God he's making God sound worse than worse than he is. Okay? And we need to be careful about adding to God's law, but he also attacked God's character. He called God a liar. Did did God really say, are you really going to die verse 4? but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Do you see what Satan's doing? He's trying to make God look like a cosmic spoil sport. That is one of the biggest lies that I think we as believers struggle. Teach this to your kids. God is not trying to keep good things from you. His law is not restricting your life. His commandments on your sexual expression and your material expression and the way, the type of freedom you have, that is all to make you happy. God is not keeping, God is never keeping good things from his people. But that's exactly what Satan told them. He took away from God's law. He, he doubted God's truth. I find this interesting to think about. Think about this for a moment, especially if you keep up with ideas in our culture Where's truth come from? If, if God is the creator of everything, then that means that God is the source of truth. He alone is the source of truth. So think about what Adam and Eve are doing in the garden. They are evaluating God's truth, they're using reason, intuition, all sorts of human things. They are evaluating God's truth. But think about this. If you were going to evaluate God's truth, what standard do you use? Any standard for testing God's truth would have to be a word of an authority that's better than God. But that doesn't exist. And if it did, how would you test his truth? We live in an age of reason. You hear so many people say, I only believe what science can prove to me. When they get their story straight, let me know. They keep changing and adding and changing their mind, right? Any standard of truth other than God is lesser, okay? Now, think about it. Why was eating the fruit so evil? Have you wondered about this? Maybe your kids have asked you this question. Well, the most basic answer is God told them not to. That's all we need to know at first. God's rule is exercised through his word, okay and so when you disobey when they disobeyed god they opposed his rule god did not want them to have the knowledge of good and evil have you ever wondered about that phrase the knowledge of good and evil that's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to interpret i think that this is this means more than simply knowing right and wrong i think it's i think it's more than that i think on one sense we could think about it as deciding what is right or wrong. The knowledge of good and evil is that we are we are deciding, we think, what is right and wrong. They were trying to be lawmakers. They were made to be lawkeepers. They tried to be lawmakers and in turn they became lawbreakers. Right? If we want to be lawmakers or that's the nature of our sin. We want to be law makers. And that has been the nature of man ever since the beginning. So beware those, that, that impulse in your heart. I think one of the most tragic effects of Adam and Eve knowing good and evil is that, think about this, bear with me for a moment on this, is that God is no longer regarded as the self-evident creator. Think about our culture. Think about how we as a culture make decisions and on what we decide is true and what information we trust. God has been removed as being self-evident creator. His word is no longer accepted as a self-evident truth, but it's reduced just to the status of another creature. We as a nation have been founded on an idea that there are self-evident truths. But we as a nation don't like anything that claims to be truth. We have challenged, humanity has challenged God and have taken away his right of deciding what is truth. God and his word are now lesser authorities that submit to man. Do you see how this works? Every time we sin, this is the dynamic that's happening, okay? An act of rebellion. But we also see a judgment, okay? Hopefully you've read Genesis chapter 3, uh, 14 through 19. We have, we have a reference to the details of the curse. This is where God lists out uh, the details of the curse. And to summarize some of the things that are going on here is we see that in response to man's sin comes judgment, is always true. And it shows up in broken relationships. There's three primary ways that relationships are broken. First, there's the broken relationship between man and woman. Trust and intimacy are gone. They make coverings to hide their nakedness. They, They start arguing with each other. They start blame shifting. They won't accept responsibility for their own actions. The, the relationship that all the, all the dynamics are going to be out of whack. Verse 16 says uh, to the wife, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So the woman will not relate to the husband correctly and the husband will not relate to the wife correctly. She, she, will, have de- his de- she will have desires for his role and he will be a cruel ruler over her. A husband will no longer exercise his rule in the loving, self-sacrificial way that God has intended. The new way of relationships is harsh rule. Trying to control other people. Trying to get your way. Try, entering into relationships just for what you can get out of it. That's the new way of relationships outside of God's presence. We also see the relationship between humanity and creation. That is also broken. From now on, it will be a struggle. I wish we could talk. I'm going to teach another class about this some other time. I wish we could talk about this. But we're, from now on, God's, the, the, the task that God had given Adam and Eve in the garden, which was to cultivate the world, that is now going to be incredibly hard to, to control and to rule the earth. God made man to be rulers. In the world. Man's dominion will now be challenged on every single side even by the earth itself. Verse 17 it says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Man's dominion is now going to be challenged by earth itself. I like to think about it like this, man is given a taste of his own medicine. God legitimately gave Adam authority over the earth and now the earth is rebelling. Isn't that interesting? God's giving man a taste of his own medicine as he experiences the rebellion against his own legitimate rule. But then of course we see the broken relationships between man and between God. Their friendship has been destroyed, but the key thing to notice here is what happens to man. He's alienated. He is alienated from God. And when God comes seeking man, what's man do? He hides. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Right? Man was, he was hiding. Man is now aware of his nakedness before God, yet we see God, even in chapter 3, verse 9, we see his grace calling after man. But we see God judges man just as he said he would. He said that if you eat of it, you will die. And that is the justice. God never makes a promise for judgment that he does not fulfill. So now man exists physically for a time, but he's spiritually dead. He's cut off from the presence of the Lord. We must recognize that true life is lived in the presence of God. When you're distant from God, you you can't enjoy true life. He is the source of life. And so when they're kicked out of the garden, it is a clear reminder of that. So man exists physically for a while, but they're spiritually dead. And their bodies immediately start to decay. The human race is walking dead. I've been thinking about how to explain death to my children. What a terrible thing. Children should not have to know about death, because death shouldn't exist. So God's going to fix that, isn't He? The human race, though dead, continues. But in Genesis 3.15, we get this glimmer of hope, which will develop more. Look down at 3.15, I want to make sure this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Where God is speaking to the serpent, He says, "'I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring.' And then here come the precious words, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. But more on this later. Then we see the spread of sin and death. We're going (laughs) to finally pick up the pace a little bit. Genesis chapter 4 through 11 is charting the way that death and sin spread, but it's also charting God's response and judgment. In chapter 4, we read about Cain and Abel. Just think about this. Right after chapter 3, the very first account we have is the murder within a family. You talk about a broken picture of relationships, murdering a family member. This illustrates that the human relationships are not just broken in marriage, but in the family. And we'll see later, man killing each other. It's all of relationships in humanity are broken. And what happens to Cain? We see Cain sent away from his home. Remember what happens when you disobey God? You're alienated from him. You remember that? Sane, uh, Cain is sent wandering. But even then, God is giving protection. Do you remember how God proclaimed, we read, just read in 3.15, that there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent? Well, the seed of the woman has produced two people, Cain and Abel. Which one is like the serpent? Cain, which one is like, not like the serpent? Abel, right? This is a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that is very clearly divided. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, right? We see this all throughout the scriptures. Cain is seen away from home, away from life, and he's alienated and wandering, I'll skip through some of that a little more quickly. But then in Genesis 5, we move to a picture of mortality. The first genealogy we see in the Bible is Genesis chapter 5. Humans are doing what God told them to do, in one sense. They're being fruitful and multiplying. It's one thing that humans tend to be better at than some other things, even though in some places that's even changing. This is exactly what God commanded them to do in chapter 1, verse 28. To be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 5 stresses something that's very important. I hadn't really noticed this until recently. That even though all of this sin is present, even though things are so messed up, man is still in the likeness of God. Look at Genesis 5, verse, I have that. Yeah. Genesis five, verse 2. This is the beginning of the genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, and then what's it say? He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. There's so much to say about that. have got to resist. Let me just say this. We see that sin has not ruined the likeness of God. Man still reflects God's rule. I think that's the key component about being made in the image of God, made to rule in the way he would rule. And there, that has been preserved, but this is genealogy. What do genealogies remind us of? A lot of dying going on. A lot of dying in Genesis. That's what it reminds us. And and you know, even though the first humans lived for a really long time, some of them lived for a really long time, they still died. Whether you live to be nine hundred and seventy-two, how old was nine hundred and whatever, or whether you live to be nine, man still dies. So we have the harsh reality of death. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 the Spirit, and then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he's flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Death is the harsh reality separated from God and his perished kingdom. Okay, then we move on to the flood, right? Who got to go see the ark? Creation exhibit thing recently. Okay, great. Um, so I haven't been. I've seen it from the highway. It's huge. Uh, but but with that picture in your mind, let's let's make sure we get the, the main point of the flood story. The main point is not like how big the boat was or how how in the world did Moses or how in the world did Noah feed them and build it and all that. So those are interesting things, and we can think about them and talk about them. But let's not let's not miss the main point. After several generations, it's clear that sin is still thriving. And this grieves the Lord. Look at 6 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so remember, God's purpose is to plant a kingdom in the world where his people would reflect his image and rule like him. And this is the complete opposite every intention of his heart is evil. And the Bible says the Lord regretted the creation of man. And he moved towards judgment. The flood is his judgment. Now let's think about the flood for let's think about it for just a moment. The flood is the uncreating of the world. It is the opposite of Genesis 1. It is the decreating. Think about, think about it. If you, want to, if you want more on this, come talk to me or just read Genesis 6 all the way up through chapter 9. We see some of these things. Um, just to give you a little tidbits, think about what happened on the first and the second day. God separated the land and the water. Well, what's the flood? The land and the water aren't separated, separated anymore, right? It's the, it's the undoing. The creation has returned to day one chaos, that's what's, that's what's happening. Once again, you remember you remember Genesis 1-2? I'll just read it. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and then earlier in the face of the deep. And yet here we are again. The world is covered in water. I don't have time to talk about this. This this is blowing my mind in these days, but um, the covenant, God makes a covenant with Noah. And what God tells Noah to do is do what Adam failed to do. Read Genesis nine and see how much God's commands to Noah are the same thing that God commanded Adam to do. Right? I can't help it. Here's a few. <laughs> and God said Genesis nine one. And God said God blessed Noah and said to his uh, and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." Does that sound familiar? What else did he say? He says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. Did God not tell them that he was going to have, have dominion over the beasts of the earth? And if you read further, there's far more here. God is putting a new Adam on this new earth that he's recreated in a sense. But Noah gets drunk and passes out naked. He's not a good Adam. That's what happens after the flood. Is is there an exhibit on that at the Creation Museum? Drunk Noah, naked? No. <laughs> I haven't seen. You, you didn't see it? I bet it would attract a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Babble. Genesis, Genesis 11, okay? So, so God preserved one family through the flood. One family to continue human history. And he, and he preserved the animals, but what happened? Nothing preserved the... Uh, what's the word? Nothing survived the flood except for what was on the boat. The problem was, is there was sin on the boat. Sin, was, sin survived the flood, The very core of sin is to rule ourselves. It's the desire to exalt self over God, to create our own kingdom independent of God. So now we come to the Tower of Babel. Think about what the Tower of Babel is. It is the desire to rule ourselves, to create our own kingdom, right? Babel is a vivid picture of that sinful desire and God does not ignore it so he frustrates the empire building by doing what? What's he do? Yeah, he scatters. Do you remember what happens when you sin? You're alienated. There's a scattering, and it's not just alienated from God. We're alienated from each other, even more. That's why you can't even understand some people, right? Sin alienates man. So just like Cain, sin ends in disunity, I can't wait to show you this in the New Testament. And so now we see humans are divided from God. They're divided from their spouses. They're divided from their children. Now they're divided from their neighbors. Everything's a mess. And not only that, but animals are after them too. And the earth is trying to eat them, right? It swallows them up and there's plagues. Things are going very, very bad in the perished kingdom. So we've seen the pattern of God's kingdom in creation. This is how it's supposed to be. And by the way, this is how it's going to end up being. But it's been radically damaged. It's been destroyed by sin. Humans no longer live in God's place. We have been, uh, in, in, in this stage, banished from the garden outside of God's place. And since humans reject God's rule, what do we experience? We, since we live like we rule the world, we experience the curse. Whenever you resist God's rule, you will experience the curse. But God continues to reign. What's Even though God continues to reign, even though God is still sovereign, rebels do not experience the blessing of his reign. Instead, God exercises his rule through judgment. Did you know that? God rules in hell through judgment. God exercises his rule either through blessing or judgment. That's how you experience God's rule. Blessing or judgment. Teach it to your children. There's only one way. There's only two, two options for how you experience God. Through blessing or through judgment. you want to be happy or do you want to be miserable? Obedience is the path. Oh, by the way, you can't obey very well, so you need someone to obey for you. Jesus. You need Jesus cares. Okay. Um, so this is how we experience God's rule through judgment. Now, I want to go ahead and pick up this one, one final thing on threads of grace. So far, all this has sounded terribly bad. Threads of grace. But I want to, remember, we we want to marvel as all this unfolds. Not just knowing the end, but we want to marvel at how this unfolds. Now, let's just think about it for a moment. When God saw Genesis 6, when he looked at man, when he was sorry that he had created man, when he saw that all of the intentions of their hearts were evil all the time, what did God do? He destroyed the world. Did he have to do the ark thing? No. Praise be to the God of grace. He would have still been a God of grace if he destroyed the world and just left it, right? But God gave them an ark. Consider God's grace. He did not have to do that. I was driving home the other day. I've been studying some of this stuff all day, and I saw a rainbow saw a rainbow. It's not just, oh, God isn't going to destroy the world with a flood. It's that God will tolerate sinful humanity for a while. Praise be to the God of grace. Let's marvel at His grace. The story of the Bible could have ended in Genesis chapter 6. Flood, the end. Right? It could have. There's no reason There's no reason for a just God to preserve and tolerate humanity except for His grace. And we see this early on. God has determined to restore His kingdom on earth. He still rules, obviously, but He wants to establish it and restore it. He desires to bring people back to create for Himself a new people who gladly submit to His rule, and He's going to give them a home. This is the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. But so far, we're not there yet because God's people are in a mess and they're not obeying God's rule and they're not experiencing God's blessing. So how are we going to get there? My guess is, is that new insights will come as this unfolds. So I'd encourage you to, to stick with it and, and come back. Let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. If you have questions, you can come chat with me afterwards. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We recognize that there's no reason in and of man for you to preserve the world. We're amazed, Father, that you would put down your bow, that you would set down your wrath towards mankind, and you would tolerate us, that the gospel might shine forth on this earth while you create a new people for yourself. Father, we thank you that you've brought us in to be that people and we eagerly await the day where we will be with you, enjoying your rule, fully submissive to you, even in our hearts and in your place with your people. Father, would you come finish this story quickly, but help us to understand it and celebrate it now as we will through all of eternity. We ask this in your name. Amen. See you next week.